Prosecuting Modernity, the end of cheap energy. Interview with Tara Vaden, episode 69. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Tara Vaden, a philosopher in the BIOS Research Unit in Helsinki. Both society and nature are moving past the age of cheap fossil fuels when coal, oil, and gas, you take your pick, could be taken out of the ground and burned for the high calorific content to power our world. Now we have to contend with putting all that CO2 back into the atmosphere and the growing power of nature with, which threatens our climate. In this interview, Tara provides us with a perspective through philosophy and humanities to understand the deeper meaning of what it actually means to release so much CO2 from fossil fuels. Humanity released the CO2 by assuming we had power over nature, but the sad fact is nature has the power over us. And now we are just beginning to pay the price. As we see, a great humbling is now occurring based on our hubristic use of natural resources. One of the key words for this episode is hubris, so pay attention. The pace of this episode speaks to Tara's in-depth thinking about the interlinkages between societies, governments, and nature. If you enjoy a more business or market perspective on the energy system, then this episode delivers on these points. We start off our discussion from understanding current affairs and climate negotiations and the impact of Russia's invasion of Ukraine from a Finnish perspective. Later, we delve into a more philosophical discussion about how energy is not just the outcome of processing raw materials, but rather a source of power and control over both society and nature. That is, we discuss common understandings of how power can be seen through government actions, but we also get into how nature holds power over humanity. And this is one of the key lessons society has forgotten. It, is, it was us that put so much CO2 into the atmosphere, and it's now us that have to deal with nature's changing ways. Each episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast is unique and different. This episode is a great representation of that. One of the main joys of doing this podcast is to find new people to talk to about energy. And here is a great example of me meeting Tara in Helsinki and gaining a greater understanding of both Finland's approach and perspective on energy, and also a deeper philosophical understanding. The meeting also brought about a deeper discussion about how philosophy can inform our understanding of energy. More specifically, how we use and perceive energy in our modern society and the greater awareness of the downsides. As you'll hear, there are so many new ways we need to explore to expand our thinking on conceptualizing the energy transition. In fact, it is hard to see how we can have an energy transition if we don't have new conceptual framings to understand what we have done in the past, what are we doing now, like now, and what we need to get done in the future, all to get off fossil fuels. And I would just say to just be more sustainable. A final note, this interview was done for my current role as an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. The funding was generously provided to produce the podcast until the end of 2022. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. 
The content of each episode is great for teaching, research, and identifying how you can assist this energy transition. And check out the transcripts. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Tara Vaden, a philosopher and member of the BIOS Research Unit. So Tara, I just want to welcome you to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. And uh, we have, I have a lot of questions, but I'm mainly really excited that you do philosophy and energy. And one of the things I'm drawing on is your co-authored book with Auntie uh, Salmanen, yeah. uh, which is called Energy and Experience, an essay in naphtology. So uh, I really want to get into some of the issues you, you raise in the book. But before we do that, I want to maybe ask about your background and how did you become interested first, I would say, in philosophy? And then second, how did you become interested in energy? Okay, yeah, so the story is I was, I, I've always been interested in many things. So uh, studying philosophy was one way of delaying the decision of what, what, what I want to be when I grow up. So okay. Because in philosophy you can do pretty much, oh, be interested in so many things. So that's why philosophy. And uh, yeah, I did, I did sort of philosophy of mind, philosophy of cognitive science. My dissertation was on, on the philosophy of AI. 1996, 95, something like that, and I continued on that that line. But then, just by accident, somehow, early 2000s, I uh, happened to surf on peak oil sites, and I started reading about the the idea of peak oil and, and the phenomenon of peak oil. And for years, I just sort of like read about it and, and was so amazed. Why, why did nobody, why, why didn't anybody tell me about this? <laughs> How uh -huh. is it possible that there is this, this thing that we are so dependent on, on oil especially and, and the other fossil fuels and, and nobody mentioned it anywhere, at least in, in, in my studies or in our studies, was what we did. And, and then sort of uh, out of that, it, it sort of grew. First, the sort of like philosophical, theoretical, conceptual, zeitgeist thing, uh, interest in, in, in oil and, and fossil fuels. And then well, we wrote that book and wrote some other stuff. And, and then now sort of it has turned more also to this kind of empirical side that now in, in the BIOS research unit. So uh, I concentrate a lot on the energy issues and resources used that face Finland now with, with, all, with all the ecological and ener energy and whatever crisis, polycrisis that, that we are facing. Mm -hmm. And um, for you, how, do, how does philosophy bring in um, like a, new, a different perspective? So you saw this gap. Uh, but w what does it bring? What is it? Uh, how does it educate, or how does it expose new things in the energy system? Yeah, that's a that's a really really good question. I think the sort of like the first thing that that was amazing. So Antti, my my co-author in, in that book that you mentioned, so we had a we had a common hobby. We, we were shooting bows and arrows, and we started discussing about this peak oil question and, and and so on. And and the first sort of thing really there is that why. Why is there, there? There's virtually no sort of philosopher that, that has said anything interesting about energy, and that that is a symptom in, in itself. How is it possible that we are so reliant, or that especially this kind of modern uh, high energy use lifestyle is so de dependent on fossil fuels, and nobody has said anything about it? So that itself is a sort of like a thing, very interesting thing, and like any any kind of sort of uh, Mm. 
basic. I think, uh, well, let's put it this way. Philosophers, had, philosophers and, and other criti- critical thinkers have said a lot of things about the ownership of stuff and, and mass society and technology and, and these kind of things. But they are all dependent on energy. So, so that's sort of like to take the philosophical conceptual, maybe phenomenological analysis, how the fact that we are dependent on, on energy and don't notice it, what kind of structure of experience, what kind of structural feeling that sort of implies or what is what is sort of hidden 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 there in the in the black in the black spot or in the black sun of oil that we don't notice. I, li- I like it's the black spot yeah. right we don't notice it and you bring out uh, structuralism uh, or the structure of it and I'll just say structuralism because that's kind of my perspective on the energy system as well it's it's yeah it is structure it's a structure that shapes society and society operates within that structure but Okay, that's my view. Maybe mm. I ask you, how, uh, from a structural perspective, wh- what is the interrelationship between the energy system and society? Well, the st- yeah, the structure is, is quite sort of, uh, for me, one, one of the crucial, crucial points when I started, started sort of uh, understanding something, or at least got some insight, was when I was uh, already like... 10, 15 years ago, somewhere in, in social media, I, I was sort of uh, trying to get people to sort of uh, be be aware or be angry about the fact that we are reliant on Russian oil and Russian, Russian gas that is mostly produced in, in areas in Siberia where there are also sort of fin, Finno-Ugric people that we should sort of feel sympathy uh, with and, and they are produced under circumstances that are not so beneficial either for nature or for the people that are living there. So I, I wrote that, okay, did you know that today when you went to the gas station and, and filled up your tank, it was coming from Siberia. From, And then somebody just wrote underneath it that, that, that well, the car doesn't care where the oil comes from. And then I was thought, yeah, well, that's that's kind of true. The car doesn't the car doesn't know, and, and even the consumer and even the oil company. That's what the oil companies are telling us now that they don't know, they can't know the source, which is of course partly a lie, but it's partly true that that is so standardized, so so homogenized, and the structures the structures are built so that you don't have to know where the energy is coming from. That's that's a crucial crucial spot, part of the structure that you don't have to know. Like for this room, this room is heated somehow, but how, how do I know how it is heated? Where does the heat come from? Well, it's probably coming from burning wood now in, in, in the Helsinki, Helsinki central heating system. But, but anyhow, sort of the oil especially is this kind of thing that structurally, uh, we, we even sort of uh, use a neologism in the book, uh, sort of condistancing, that mm-hmm. it, it sort of connects us by keeping distant. So my car use here in Finland is completely connected to Siberian oil fields in a way that keeps this distant, that I don't know this, that, that I can't even sort of know it, or I would have to use half of my life to find out what kind of oil went into my car yesterday. But, or but do, you, do you think, so I really like this term code distancing because it's, it's about, um, it's so far, yeah, like you said, it's, if it's in Siberia, which for anyone in the world, although you're closer to Siberia than mm. most people, <laughs> like, because Siberia is so far away, but still, um, 
this code distancing, so it's it's so far away, it's remote. We don't worry about the environmental impact, or we don't see the environmental impact. We don't see the uh, human impact, or the social impact in those regions. And I think it's quite interesting then how you framed it in this Finnish uh, Finnish um, way. The, this is a I have to be careful. I, I don't <laughs> a Finnish um, a territory in Russia with Finnish people in it. Mm. I guess Finno-Ugric people. Finno-Ugric people. Okay. And you know, I'm I'm Hungarian, so I'm also really concerned yeah, about yeah. the linguistic Finno- linguistic relatives. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, uh, but 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 it, so it's distant away. But do you think? And uh, maybe I'm going to jump ahead to current issues, but then we'll go back again. But with climate change. And we can call it climate emergency, but certainly everyone's aware of global warming, climate change. But how does, don't you see that, okay, when you started talking about this a few years ago, maybe there was less awareness or some awareness, we can Mm -hmm. argue about this, whether it's growing or not growing. But we have climate change now and this awareness of climate change and the impact of cutting the rainforest, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, do Do you think this distance this co-distancing is maybe decreasing yeah it's it's decreasing now or we are sort of starting to notice what happened with with all the burning <laughs> but of course this sort of uh, it's 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 relatively sort of uh, in in terms of historical time of course it's quick in the sense that like like you know most of the burning has happened since the 80s or also because we are also so many now on the planet and and the, and the use is so so massive so now we start noticing noticing it even though of course in in some sense it is obvious already in the end of of the 19th century some scientists were were calculating and saying that this kind of greenhouse effect is going to happen if we burn a lot of this stuff and that's i think that's part of also of the of the sort of black spot or the blackness of oil that it makes realizing and and sort of actually acting on and understanding this phenomena hard like now we know that climate change is is a sort of uh, at least the civilization threatening sort of thing and still we are sort of still there still is sort of hard to <laughs> take on and still it's hard to be conscious and 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 act on it and and sort of like uh, nanoplastics i think the plastic thing is going to be probably even even sort of bigger thing than than climate change now it's it's already everywhere and and again that is something that <coughs> you don't really need of course it's good that we do scientific investigations about climate change and nanoplastic and so on but if you just sort of use your uh, common sense it's it's clear that if you produce gigatons of stuff that it's not going to decompose it then it's going to be everywhere yeah, it's going to be That's, everywhere yeah but but this um uh, maybe i go back to the oil question because um wouldn't it but people know it's happening climate change and it's done by fossil fuels so that why don't they just make a decision to give up their cars live mm. in cities and yeah not rely on fossil fuels for just transportation yeah at least. of course some some people are doing but the, i can think that comes back to the structural point that you you mentioned that the 
the sort of like the arteries of the arteries of the system are, are built so that it needs a certain amount of of oil so if it just would sort of cut it cold turkey that would mean a lot of deaths and, and a lot of all kinds of misery so that's that's uh, about the metabolism the system is built so that it doesn't run that's also an interesting interesting sort of sort of semi-philosophical thing about uh, uh, fossil fuels and society that society doesn't run on any energy it needs specific types of energy and and uh, now we see it with natural gas and, and Germany and, and uh, central European heating and, and industry but but in the case of oil sort of uh, all the cars need something liquid <laughs> they, they they can't run on, on on something solid or something gaseous or, or whatever so the, there's a huge infrastructure that is built on particular types of uh, of energy carriers like like oil in in this case so even if you would have a lot of electricity or even if you've had sort of in abstract terms the same amounts of kilowatt hours or whatever it wouldn't fit with the system and that's that's the sort of big thing that we have to do sort of rebuild a huge amount of infrastructure to to fit with other forms of energy production mm-hmm, for different energy but mm. and and this is in the book too and maybe you can expand on it because you, you talk a lot about oil like like we have been talking a lot about oil but before that there was coal mm. and and then now we have gas maybe maybe you could talk about uh, why these fossil fuels are so important? Um, how do I? Uh, I would say in power, in control, or the regime that's in place. But and y- you bring out Timothy Mitchell's uh, book yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think sort of the oil is, is is in some sense the king. It it sort of best it is best suited with with the sort of uh, uh, capitalist hyper-consumerist uh, sort of society in that it, it is produced in in specific places that can be controlled in, in terms of sort of power and power politics and geopolitics and it can be uh, uh, transported for long distances it can be stored nothing happens to it when you when you store it you can store it in in huge amounts which is more problematic again when it comes to gas now we maybe with LNG we are coming to the point where we can store store all also gas but that's sort of like the uh, the uh, arteries the spots where it is produced and the arteries through which it is produced can be controlled and, and can be in few hands. Also something we, we sort of understand with Russia nowadays. Mm-hmm. Sort could, of the, could you the energy, mm-hmm. energy weapon. And and like Timothy Mitchell points out that sort of uh, coal was different in, in the sense that still sort of at that point there were unions that controlled like coal mining and, and coal, coal transport like rail unions. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of made it possible in the early 20th century to get these... Uh, uh, concessions for for the workers by stopping coal production but oil production has always been done in a sort of like segregated manner in the sense that maybe sort of like manual workers uh, uh, in the oil fields they are local but then all the management is, is flown in and there's already segregation on, on, on that level and also in, in in sort of if it happens someplace that that sort of uh, workers start to own oil fields then, it, then they are just killed 
<laughs> simply, and and the uh, and the oil fields are taken into into sort of company custody <laughs> again. So that's that's what has happened several times. Not not all not universally, but several times. Mm-hmm. So that that sort of has been the mode of oil production for. So this goes along with like the, the multinational companies and their their yeah. expertise going yeah. into a location. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But also sort of like nowadays, sort of the big the the so-called eight sisters, the big multinationals. Of course, they are only maybe ten percent of the of the international oil market, and the big big companies are the national companies. So it's it's more like they are like uh, uh, like like sometimes it is said about Russia that. That is a gas station with a state or or gas station with a with a army. So so that's that's the thing. The the oil countries or Qatar now looking at what's what's happening there. So it's a big sort of fossil state, mm-hmm. the, the single entity that sort of also masquerades as a <laughs> as a sort of national state or. Okay, well, yeah, because it has oil, it has well coal even. Uh, yeah, and gas, and uh, gas as yeah, well, and yeah. so it's a fossil state, yeah. uh, or well, it's a, it's a fossil company in a yeah, sense, with a state, with a state within <laughs> yeah. a state, yeah, mm-hmm. and with a, with an army. So that's that comes also to this sort of like coal, oil, gas. They have different properties, even as fossil fuels, in sort of how how they structure society or how, how society is structured around them. Like for gas, you need need the pipelines, oil sort of easier to uh, easier to utilize through tankers and and, and, and so on and, and also the well gas and oil are somehow somewhat interchangeable but but sort of different from from coal yeah could you expand on that what, what is the role because gas now that we see with this crisis and particularly the uh, the, I would say the general assumption, for example, Germany was that oh they're switching away from from fossil fuels and it's agreeing with the energy vendor. This is wonderful, but in reality, it's like oh wait, they're really relying on gas. So is gas the new energy carrier that uh, could be do- more dominant in the future, or th- there's also I, a role? Well, of oil? I, I hope it won't be because mm. if again we are sort of already already so close to the limits on on the carbon budget so even even though gas is is somewhat cleaner to burn than than oil and a lot cleaner than coal but still still uh, it would would produce too much in 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 the climate climate sense but i think one one thing there is that sort of uh, gas is is needed not only for energy but it is a raw material it's a it's a raw material stock for uh, German chemical industry. Mm-hmm. So that that's one one, and that that was one of the sort of biggest uh, surprises for 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 me that it was said aloud. One of the senior senior CEOs or something of BASF, the big uh, chemical company, said sometime last last spring that well, our competitiveness actually that is based on cheap Russian gas. So he didn't say that it's based on our sort of exceptional skills and knowledge and no. <laughs> tradition. He said that it's based on cheap gas, the, the raw material that they that they need. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one part of the sort of fertilizers, plastics. Those are made out of out of gas, not out of oil. Again, you could maybe do them out of oil, but there's a sort of one step. Uh, uh, more work and labor, so it's more expensive and, and so on. Yeah, and so there come these sort of like the transfer, basically sort of coal, oil and gas are the same stuff, 
but nature has done some transformations for them so that they are different. Of course, we can do the transformations ourselves, but then there's an added step, an mm -hmm. added cost, an added energy use. But in terms of, uh, I would say, state and social relations, uh, you have you have in the book there, for example, that uh, Russia is still in control of the oil, right? Like Europe thinks it's free from this Russian influence or whatever. And how how does the the gas situation? I mean, now maybe maybe we can shift a little bit to understanding the impact of. Russia's war in Ukraine and the reaction of the European Union, we could say Western countries, against Russia and, and attempting to limit and cut off gas and oil exports and coal exports from, from Russia. Um, what, what did, what did the, the, the crisis and the reaction um, show about Europe's dependency on Russian fossil fuels? I think for many, many people who had uh, followed, followed the energy uh, in energy world and energy situation, it wasn't so surprising that energy will, uh, or that Russia will use the energy weapon. I remember already again in maybe it was 2006 or 2005 something. I read uh, a report by a think tank that is close to German uh, army Wehrmacht, and and they did a report on on energy. And there was a sentence there already that said that okay, we have to tone down the criticism of of the human rights situation in. In Russia, oh. because uh -huh. and so on and so forth. So it has been been clear in that sense that there is this dependency, and it has been there have been some some people who have been sort of pointing that out and 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 sort of criticizing that. And in in that sense, sort of it was obvious that Russia is going to use it in 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 some way. Of course, how 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 sort of for. Uh, how total and and, and how how uh, sort of uh, massive this both the war war in Ukraine itself and and then the then the uh, embargoes and counter embargoes or so on how big they were that's maybe surprising but but the fact that they are going to use it in some way that was that mm -hmm. was obvious and in in that sense sort of it is a little bit hard of course I've read a lot of, lot about sort of what explains the naivete in Germany for instance and there are good reasons but it's still hard to understand how how it was possible mm -hmm. but doesn't this this exposure then isn't this good for moving away from fossil fuels because it shows how hopefully hopefully mm -hmm. yeah but of course we are seeing things now like uh, Germany doing a 25 year uh, deal with Qatar on yes. natural gas of course it is it is also true like uh, I was listening to one of one of the uh, podcast uh, sessions that you did with this I, I don't remember his name uh, the French uh, gas expert oh, yeah. uh, Terry Bros Terry Bros uh -huh. yeah yes he was saying that it, it is it would be sort of like irresponsible now to just cut all fossil fuels. We did something before we have enough wind and sun and so on. So maybe it is and, and that that's something that Finland is also doing together with Estonia, building LNG terminals and mm -hmm. and, and that sort of capacity. So yeah, probably we need it. But but then the thing to take care of is that that doesn't produce sort of like uh, long-term path dependencies. Yes, yes. So that we can then move away uh -huh. from from the LNG. Uh -huh. But uh, Tara, you're you're kind of middle of the road here. I'm I'm getting disappointed. I, I <laughs> as a philosopher, I I I was thinking more radical position. But maybe we'll we'll delve into the philosophy <laughs> because because yeah, we so essentially you buy. 
you accept that we we have this energy transition from fossil fuels, mm. but is there a danger? And maybe this is what I, I see just talking to some people on this on this trip is that it really seems like the companies that are in control now, the gas companies, oil companies, state companies, private companies, are having a hard time letting go. And when it comes to like energy communities, we can define that however in different ways. But I would say maybe the democratization of the energy system Mm. that renewables allow people to do and society to have and not be so reliant on a centralized system. Is there is there how 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 do you see this interaction? Because you talk a lot about capitalism and with Marxism and and the labor, for example, with coal and the switch to oil is how, what is, because the, there's this natural tension, particularly in a neoliberal market system that we have of large companies or, or governments wanting to stay central. You talk about the arteries for oil and gas, mm. but what about the arteries for like controlling the energy system and influencing society through mm. the structuralist approach? Um, is there a danger that the energy transition <clears throat> remains like a centralized system rather than a more democratic or decentralized system? Yeah, there's a big, big danger. Of course, the hope is that uh, wind, produ- wind power production, solar production, so on, they are by their nature, sort of again, like physical nature, physical structure, they are more distributed. The, the wind towers are where they are, and they can be they can be put in in many places, and and not sort of like uh, uh, so concentrated as the as the fossil fuel wells and, and and so on. But like you say, like again, I know the situation best in 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 Finland because of the studies and and research we do in in, in bios with regard to Finland. So a lot a big part of the uh, uh, wind power parks are owned by German and, and French companies. So there is the danger that, of course, it is it is good from the climate change perspective if we change from fossil fuels to, to these so-called renewable sources, but not from the democracy point of view, if it, if it is the same companies and if, it's <coughs> if it is centralized like that. <coughs> but I think it, I, I think I, I still sort of hope that it won't be again just because of the physical material structure of the of the production that that the sort of if if a company owns wind parks all over the world it is still going to be harder to control than owning owning sort of uh, fossil fuel wells just because of the distribution and and and, and so on mm-hmm. And, and so, be, I mean, it's, just it's it's more like having to do with how much energy do you get from a specific area of land. If if you have like a square, square one square uh, kilometer of oil well, that's a huge amount of energy. That if you have one square, square kilometer of forest, that's a little you can <laughs> get to the the wood to burn. If you have uh, wind wind towers there, then you get a little more energy, but still it's sort of like hundreds or thousands of times less than you would get from an oil well. Uh-huh. So that's sort of what, what I think is the physical thing that is hopefully driving a more sort of uh, distributed and, and hopefully also more democratized sort uh-huh. of uh, energy system. But you raise a, a great point there. I'm, uh, so I'm a geographer. So but then 
the, it's the concentration of energy within a given space, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Sort of fossil fuels have, have been so sort of for. I don't know. I'm I'm just looking for the English word. I can piece them. Mine would be the Finnish word, but it's it's so so concentrated mm-hmm. in that, and and the energy content is so so big. Yes, that uh, anything else is going to take more space. Yes, and so there, a you have more stakeholders. You have more just the natural environment to mm. account for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is maybe why planning and regulations are a big yes. hindrance exactly. for renewable energy. Exactly, and that's mm-hmm. that's why, why like in, in, in Finland, where uh, forest and bioenergy is a big part of the rene- renewable thing, there's already now sort of uh, problems between forest owners and, and wind power companies and so on because of the land use mm-hmm. issue. Uh-huh. Land use is, is going to become a much bigger bigger thing because of the energy transition mm-hmm. and one one uh, other I, I really liked your book and i i know i read it too fast but <laughs> I, i'm gonna definitely go back through and, and reread it and also have my students read parts of it and but one of the the issues or cultural aspects you bring up is indigenous communities and this is also something i think is really informative because they certainly have a different worldview than us and different background than I would say just Western civilization. I'll just put it like that. Um, and their connection to the land is much, much mm. tighter or historically it was much tighter. Yeah. And what can we learn or how, how does a perspective that accounts for indigenous communities and their involvement in the energy system, how can that inform us going forward? Well, from the, again, sort of very abstract or sort of high, high level or sort of conceptual level philosophy, I think it in, think about it in terms of, of knowledge and, and skills. So we know from research that, what is it, 80% of all biodiversity is on indigenous lands and, and so on. And we also know that there are indigenous peoples who see us using oil and and our lifestyles and 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 sort of material culture and they decline they they don't join the train they they do something something else so i think the sort of uh, skill thing is there something crucial my my sort of uh, example of this is that what if there, there was an indigenous people living out, outside of these modern trappings and somehow they they by mistake they somehow spoil their environment and then they come to us in the universities and and and, and so on and and they ask okay we want to live a sustainable life how do we do it uh-huh. so can we teach them well we could give them reports and and sort of articles but we couldn't give them an example how to do it yes whereas just sort of purely empirically as a a martian looking at earth there are some examples of people who live sustainably and they are not western modern (laughs) they are not western civilization people they are other other kind of other kind of people so they have the skills to live sustainably yes so if it's just talk about the skills from from this kind of Martian perspective, then it's clear where where do you go to ask? Yes. Not not to those who don't live sustainably, but yeah, from yeah. The, from those who do live live sustainable and have have those kind of uh, worldviews. And I think it it is sort of uh, connected to there again. Sort of philosophy comes in into picture that technology is one thing. We can sort of change uh, 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 IC car to. Uh, uh, electric car mm-hmm. but what this really has to do it has to do with values and and desires yes. what do i want out of life and then we come even to the unconscious thing 
how do I change what do I want? How do I change what I desire? Well, I have to ask Dr. Freud and <laughs> those those people. How do I change what I desire? And it's, it's it's in that sense it is sort of like a, we need something like civilizational psychotherapy <laughs> to to change how we feel and and what we want and what satisfies us and and so on. But don't don't we need that? To, to really tackle climate change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the thing, the problem I see, the biggest problem is that it's coming so fast that that sort of like, uh, yeah, uh, changing one's mind or changing the mind of a society or culture takes time. It typically takes a couple of generations or so, and we don't have that time. And that is that is one of the sticky things that that uh, even sort of rational thinking doesn't act fast enough in in this kind of situation. Yeah, but but wouldn't you say how how could we use the current crisis, uh, essentially the ceasing or pressure on not using Russian oil and gas, as an example of what can happen during a crisis period? Yeah, well, that, that that's a good good example when it's concrete enough, and when again because I think it's not only that it's concrete enough in the sense that that gas prices are high or or that there might be cuts in electricity provision or so on but it's also uh, concrete enough in that people uh, sort of sympathize with the Ukra- Ukrainians and, and unsympathize with the Russians and that sort of produces a desire to get away from the fossil dependency and and that's sort of again sort of like deep enough to get the, the price signal and and then also the sort of ethical signal of what happens when you are dependent on fossils that that might be enough to sort of drive this kind of transition mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and push it yeah. and then what what would be the uh, as a philosopher then so what you bring to the table and and you have because there's there's limited amount of i would say a f- philosophical perspective on the energy system and how maybe (laughs) this is something that you probably should go away and think about okay (laughs) but if if you had a research agenda for philosophy and energy what what would be some key areas to hit on that that you feel are lacking that philosophy can contribute towards understanding this energy transition more deeply i think the the sort of uh, the thing about desires and and wants that would be one how this sort of like uh, how because energy is a strange thing in, in in the sense that even sort of physically uh energy you can't touch energy it, it's it's sort of like it's a quantitative thing that you can measure in very different places but it, it it's hard to say what energy in itself is but in some sense we ourselves know what energy is because we are also part of energy sort of from we know energy from the inside in 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 some sense so in that sense what what is the sort of connection of energy and uh, good human life or 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 even experience and consciousness and so on that of course that that well that goes to the eastern eastern philosophy quite quite quickly because they they have uh, studied that a lot so that that would be would be one thing and and then the other thing would be sort of like this i think there's a lot of lot of sort of uh, interesting things to just think about uh, uh, societies 
and energy systems in terms of of sort of like well the metabolism idea sort of like just to compare them to animals basically okay <laughs> and, yes. and and sort of learn from these sort of uh, kind of mutations and and structural things that that energy systems energy systems are, are comparable in, in which energy systems are comparable to biological systems and so on i think that's that's the level of complexity and and sort of for uh, uh, how to put it now in sort of like synchronous change that changes that have, have to happen things have to happen in certain rhythms when you change one thing you have to change ten others and and so on this kind of systemic or metabolic or or whatever kind of uh, view on on energy energy systems mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> and and for example in your book you write about uh, is it nafta gas uh, or nafta that's nafta gas Na- i'm not looking at my notes <laughs> Na- nafta is the old greek word for oil that's why we that's okay. why we use the word nafta oh, as philosophers you of course want to go the old greek or latin <laughs> latin <laughs> word so okay so so but you you have in there that this nafta replaces god or god dies with nafta yeah. maybe you can explain <laughs> that because i think that then talks about the rhythm of society and yeah i think it has to do with the with the thing that uh sort of since the late 19th century first in some places in the world and then in many more places we have used uh every decade or almost every year we have used more energy than the previous year and that creates the kind of uh structural feeling of of sort of uh acceleration of, of everything getting better year by year of of progress of technological progress progress medical progress all kinds of progresses <laughs> and and uh, uh and there's the again the sort of like the black uh, black sun of oil in the sense that it it had this this sort of uh, uh feeling of acceleration hasn't contained the understanding that it's dependent on on fossil fuels so if we have we can have all kinds of technology but if we don't have energy then nothing nothing happens and we have assigned uh uh praise or blame if you look at from the critical perspective to many things that that actually don't carry the praise or blame the praise or blame should go to the use of the of the energy so i think that in that sense when people sort of think that okay technology is going to save us or that we are very we are very sort of uh, i think the, it, it's fair to say that contemporary sort of western people think that we are most sophisticated in terms of knowledge and skills and so on but if i just sort of cut the fuels <laughs> then let's see how how knowledgeable and how sophisticated sophisticated we we are that we we ke- again give the sort of uh, forget the material and emphasize the sort of immaterial mm-hmm. and concentrate too much on the sort of supposed immateriality so we we called nafism this this phenomenon where people think that something something is independent from nature when in fact that very illusion of independence is dependent on the fact that there happen to be a huge amount of high quality hydrocarbons so it's actually nature itself that is sort of feeding this illusion that we are independent of nature and what's happening now is that slowly but then quickly <laughs> this this dependence is starting to re- reassert itself the material 
material uh, connection is starting to reassert itself. And that's sort of where we have to then recalibrate also the ideas that we have about knowledge and our skills and technology and, and medicine and all, all those things. Like, like we begin to see it now because of climate change. Like yeah, we, climate we, change uh, and also sort of the energy crisis. Okay. Yeah. I, I uh-huh. think the, the sort of peak point uh, of energy use per capita is already maybe in the past. So, okay. so when we move to... to Uh, solar and, and wind energy from fossil fuels. I think the energy use per capita is going to go down somewhat. Yes. And that already then changes again things. How, how much we are now, we are, we are living almost like in a fog of war or fog of oil or fog of fossil fuels. Now we're living on the top of the world. The hand of, of, the hu- hand of humanity is the longest right now. Okay. Which means that many of the things that we see are sort of like epiphenomena, not not really real. Uh, <laughs> they, are, they are here just for a couple of decades and they are going to go away. Uh-huh. But maybe I go back to this invisibility of nature. And so in one sense, we take from nature in the form of fossil fuels and lots of, <laughs> lots of ways we take from nature. But, uh, but the way society is organized, I would say with the, I don't know, professional or i don't know what the industrialization mm. of, of fossil fuels basically go to the gas right, stations yeah. all very clean uh the coal powered plants are outside the city so you don't see it in the city so somehow this energy conversion process is separated from our daily lives or done in a clean manner like inside the car engine so we don't really notice it too much but in fact that's actually we're borrowing from nature because now we've put so much CO2 into the air that it comes back in a different form mm. in like less snow in Helsinki as we were talking about yeah. or you know we start to see that the effects of climate change around us and so now this use of fossil fuels isn't so invisible to us every day now but rather it's directly affecting how we live yeah we, we have put the energy we have used a lot of the energy and and in a second book we, we uh, call this this sort of energy that now now is coming back to bite us we call it energy with, with the a in in uh-huh. the beginning sort of like the there was energy did something that we thought that it could not do like now we are the energy Uh, provided some useful things, some things that we wanted, but it now it's now also providing more energy to the sea currents, for instance, and to the weather systems, and so on. And that's what climate change is 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 doing. Sort of the destabilization has a lot to do with the fact that the climate system has a lot more energy now. Uh-huh. We've transferred the en- energy. Yeah, uh-huh. the heated oceans and 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 the increased moisture moisture. In, in the air and so on, that that has more again just physical power and physical energy, and that that's a big part of of the problems that that climate change is 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 bringing. So the energy that we took from nature was sort of big enough to, in some sense, break nature or break the sort of stab- stable nature that we were used to for I don't know ten thousand years or, or right, so. right, right. But in a way, it's it's nature, right? So nature, well, you went to the metabolism or the natural system and how it goes, and this is the natural system. More CO2 creates yeah, this yeah. Pro- natural process. Yeah, actually. more energetic storms and, and, and so on. 
And again, there I think it, one important important sort of perspective, maybe also sort of connected to some indigenous perspective, is, is that we are actually quite small. When yes. nature starts to do stuff, then then we are not so no so not so brilliant <laughs> anymore. We are relatively small. And, and how do you um, maybe maybe get back to how people live and just the urban environment? Because I think you people are so disconnected from the natural world because they live in cities. Not not everyone, of course, mm. but uh, maybe there's this urban rural divide because of this, where those that live in cities are less aware of nature or the the role mm. that nature plays in our lives, where those that are out in nature every day experience and uh, have this connection to nature. Yeah. I'm not sure what my question is, yeah, but, but something like that. Yeah, it, again, I think it's it's a structural thing that that people people learn all the time, and what cities teach us is the distance from energy and distance from food production and distance from nature. That's that's what they teach them, teach us. And if we live in cities, then of course we learn it because we are good learners. And and if you do uh, uh, live in the country and, and you. Uh, chop your own wood and, and heat your own house with the wood and so then you have a different type of understanding and, and sort of uh, concrete experience with, with energy and, and, and appreciation of energy and, and so on. So it's not that strange, I think, that this, this happens. It's just sort of uh, how, how cities are organized, how li- lives are organized that that sort of again coming back to the point that it's almost impossible for the consumer to know maybe plastic things are even even sort of the best example that <coughs> plastic things it's impossible to know where they come from and it's impossible to know where they go to yeah basically and plastic uh, comes from petroleum yeah yeah and, and, mm. and natural gas and and sort of and they are sort of almost like non-identical these these plastic things also they are they in, they are replaceable. You can't. You can't. Uh, they are. They don't have uniqueness. You can't really get attached to them because they they break down and you can't fix them and you throw them away. And, yeah. And so, unlike again, maybe vo- a wooden thing or even a metal object yes. or, or, or whatever. Yeah. So again, there there there's something of of the black blackness in in plastic things that it they are not really here they are they are sort of here but not really they have a temporal temporality to mm. them yeah uh-huh. the temporality is very different and and they come from an obscure place and they go to an obscure place uh-huh. and um how do you um so i'm not very good at philosophers and their different positions and what they contribute i haven't read that much like with heidegger that that you use i was just wondering and so one of my questions is, could you m- maybe explain, um, yeah, it, just maybe inform me. Well, I, actually, maybe the question is, because I'm ignorant of this, is why should I read Heidegger to understand energy? Well, <laughs> well, maybe not, not, even, not even Heidegger. Heidegger actually has maybe a couple of lines uh-huh. where, where he talks about energy and, and, and work. But he's more sort of interested in, in, in technology. Actually, we, we say that, or we think that, uh, I'm not using the royal V, but with, with Antti, we think that, that, that uh, Heidegger is, is also ha- makes this naftist mistake. Because Heidegger says that 
uh, that modern technology sees everything as raw material. That, it, that is the modern understanding of being, like Heidegger says, that everything is raw material for something. Even I myself am um, raw material for my success or for my flourishing and so on. That's Heidegger's view. But that contains the naftist mistake because, of course, material can be raw only in the eyes of energy. Only if you have energy and work, then you can do something the material, and then it is raw. And then so he also forgets that behind this technological technological society there's there's energy. Mm-hmm. But but Heidegger is good in 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 the way that he he sort of describes the. Well, he describes how how this kind of modern understanding of being has developed historically and and, and so on. But really, sort of, uh, well, yeah, it is it is strange that well, there's there's George Bataille is is a one French philosopher who who wrote a lot about energy. Okay, <laughs> there's several books about energy, and and he's he's interesting. But other than that, it's really hard to find modern philosophers who who wow. have written now, of course, with 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 the so-called energy humanities and so on that is that is starting to happen a lot mm-hmm. sort of could you expand on energy humanities well <laughs> energy humanities sort of uh, combines energy studies and then sort of uh, well classical humanities you look at how energy is portrayed in literature yes. how, how, how painting popular culture whatever sort of how how you see actually the traces of the energy system in how people have written about i don't know marriage or life in the city or, or whatever so so energy humanities look, looks at those things and also in, in sort of like ca- you can analyze contemporary culture and contemporary uh, sort of uh, mm, cultural phenomenon from the front perspective of how they how, how energy use is, is is sort of prominent in them mm-hmm. and how, how do we how have we gotten to this point now because I think there was a lot in, in my book I, I bring in um, oh uh, this German philosopher, um, uh, oh, I forgot his name now. Uh, <laughs> I keep repeating it over. Anyways, but he talks about energy culture. So this is where mm. I kind of draw yeah, on energy yeah. culture. And it seemed in the 1920s, 1930s, when there was a lot of this electrification coming out, motorization, mm. the switch from yeah you know, horses for everything to the car, that the energy was dramatically changing society and how society just culture culturally and just yeah everything and maybe we went through this period where we didn't realize it or under Hmm. perceive this role that energy plays and now but do you think that we're back at another point in time where we see we actually see and feel the impact that the energy system has on our daily lives. And this is why, for example, energy humanities comes about, or the term energy justice is so widely used yeah. nowadays. Yeah, I think increasingly so. And it, it's driven by this fact that the net energy that we gain, or the sort of energy per capita that we can use, is decreasing. So that that's the that makes it possible to to start noticing those things. I think this sort of actually the how, how we got here, the Greek, the old Greek notion of hubris, hubris, that sort of fits almost sort of like too well to describe how, how this happened. Like uh, when the old the classical uh, classical Greek from from the time of Aristotle and so on, the the idea of hubris it was not that is it it is a uh, offense to Gods. It, it was it was a sort of common common criminal offense where you treated somebody or something 
not with the respect that they deserve. And, and if you did it, then you would, would go to court and, and it was a sort of publicly, publicly prosecutable <laughs> offense in, 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 in Greece. And the idea is that sort of like you take, uh, in a hybristic person takes pleasure in offending some, somebody or something by using too much force or energy or, or power to do something. So even something like suicide could be a hybristic deed because you you'd sort of leave the mess to, 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 to clearing up to other people and, and, and so on. Suicide by sword, I should say. Suicide oh, by sword. Sorry, we have to differentiate yeah, between it's, it's, poison and sword. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Because because the mess, okay. because of the mess, and then the sort of non-respect to 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 people who who are left left after you. But it's it's typically things like hitting something or or, or rape or sexual violence of other types that are that are hubristic. And then then the Greeks also said say that it's very hard not to be hubristic if you are young or if you are drunk or if you are rich. <laughs> and and that's that's what fossil fuels sort of uh, um, made made for the civilization civilization became became rich and drunk. And in some sense because of the acceleration also young this this sort of uh valorization of, of being young that happened also in in the same same so it's very hard to sort of pay attention why would you pay in, in maybe i'm again now too soft <laughs> or too sort of middle of the road but it's hard not to be not why why would you pay attention to energy if you don't have to pay attention to energy yes it's it, cheap it's right? cheap it's yeah. everywhere we can use more and more of it like timothy mitchell said that you can count on oil not to count That's, okay. that's the sort of like uh -huh. there's so much of it that you don't have to worry about it. The energy system, energy question is solved. Yes. Like previous in previous centuries, you had to work a lot and and so on. But now it's solved. We can we can worry about other things. So of course that's in some sense natural that that happens. But it's also now we know it's also hubristic in the sense that that sort of uh, <coughs> we don't give well in this case nature. The, the sort of respect that it would deserve for for the sort of one-time endowment of fossil fuels that that happened to happen to be there, and I think you can also see that there is also sort of almost like a willful glee in sort of winning over nature and overpowering nature. It, it's it's not so not just about survival; it's also sort of wanting to wanting to hurt and hit back at nature. But maybe maybe I, uh, let me take try this connection between the death of God, the um, and the hubris hubris, and but maybe now we're we're coming to this time. I don't say a reckoning, but maybe a dehubris period mm. where it's not unlimited anymore. Yeah. So we actually do have to count how much yeah. oil we have and yeah. fossil fuels we have. Yeah, and like some people call it the great humbling or, or mm -hmm. something like mm -hmm. that. I think that's a good good expression, good expression for, for that. And then the Greek Greek solution, or, or the Greek, what's the opposite of hubris, is, is called sophrosyne, which is traditionally, it's, it's translated as... as um, Uh, prudence or sufficiency or meekness or, or, or those kind of things but it, it really sort of means having having good lungs having good breath having having a whole sort of uh, being being whole in, in, the, in the sense of 
of uh, not not being broken and being whole in in in, in a sort of circular way that take, takes also in in the sort of uh, others. So something like that. Will, but it, but it's almost like a I don't, don't want to go down the Greek tragedy route or anything. But but it's it's you know with climate change, the storms, the seas. Mm. It's almost this Greek mythology of nature coming back and giving it back to us yeah. after we took so much from nature. Yeah, yeah, and the gods awakening <laughs> in some in some sense. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think there's there is some symmetry. Unfortunately, that that is the thing that cliches are often sort of. Uh, they are cliches, but they also true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This yeah. is what, why these Greek tragedies or Greek stories have lived on for myths have yeah. lived on for so long because they describe the situation, the human nature, and yeah, interactions basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it was the fossil fuels were were too good in, in some sense. The it, they were too good to. The, the temptation was too big. We weren't able to resist the temptation. Yes, and now we have. Now we, yeah, we have to moderate ourselves. We have to pull back. Yeah, and say we're not going to be using so much anymore. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. exactly. I uh-huh. think that that's also one one big thing with with regard to the energy transition and, and the technological the technological issues and hydrogen economies and and all that. That the main thing is to cut back tens of percent of energy use. Yeah. That's the only only possibility. That's a huge amount. Really, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just have a few more questions to finish up. Uh, and one is the area of justice. So this ener- the topic of energy justice is out there. And I'm not sure if you've written on it or not, but do, do you have a perspective on the role that energy justice plays within the energy system or... Well, there is no justice. <laughs> That's the role. It, I, I, well, I think it's sort of like... Uh, it's it's even sort of uh, painful to think about sort of the situation, how it has been or how it is now that now that uh, Europe wants the LNG, then that means that Bangladesh is without electricity because Europe buys the LNG from the international markets and, and so on. That, well, there is no justice there or, or the effects of, of climate change. Or really, like like this saying used to be that how how has it happened that our oil is under their sand, or in Finland our oil is under their tundra, or or whatever. So oh, there hasn't been any 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 justice, and of course there should be. Yes, yeah. and but do you think uh, okay? Then maybe I, uh, I I want to put it in maybe current policy context because it this term energy justice is so big, right? It's an EU. Uh, terminology. We have a just transition fund. Mm. All this stuff. So, do do you see the efforts in the EU of making a just transition as possible, or does injustice still just um, keep it, it's, going? It's possible, and and of course, some of the some of the things that have happened are sort of like marginal steps to the right direction, like like uh, helping uh, coal miners. To find other employment and 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 so on, so that's good. But again, sort of like from the bigger perspective, they are still, of course, marginal, yes. marginal steps. But but uh, well, maybe that doesn't doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to make the margin marginal step steps. But they are marginal, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and sort of for uh, in that respect also the uh, uh, green deal things. 
sort of there there's a lot of lot of uh, good marginal steps there then there are some uh, steps to the wrong direction and and then a lot of indifferent stuff so so it's uh, yeah it's a mixed bag Mm -hmm. It almost comes full circle to what we talked about at the very beginning in your interest, the Finno-Ugric um, region or people uh, in Russia then and how they're living through this oil, we call oil landscape then mm -hmm. and, and the protection of nature. Then do you, do you think then we're putting too much emphasis on society rather than the environment and nature or how... I guess it goes together, but how do you yeah, separate that? Yeah, I, I see it very much sort of like together it's it's sort of uh, almost impossible to sort of again that's that's sort of like the animal perspective or metabolic perspective is that they are they are coupled there's so there's so society is always sort of dependent and, and coupled on on environment and, and and nature and when it is when it is like this like it is now that it it sort of takes more than it gives back then of course then it's unsustainable it's going to going going to change and uh, yeah, I, I think that comes back to the problem of, of speed, that in some sense we know what what to do and in some sense some people are already doing it, but it would have to happen so fast that it is hard to, hard to. the environment will take care of itself, of course, mm -hmm. the planet mm -hmm. is going to be fine, life is going to be fine, the problem is, is for societies. Yes. Yeah, and, and they're also sort of like between different societies. It's 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 just sort of like it's just so unjust, unjust or unjust that uh, a few societies have have used so much of the energy and and, and raw materials. I think not only current sort of uh, populations, non-Western populations, but also future populations are going to be pretty pretty angry about what we did for the hydrocarbons because they are good stuff. Yes. And and it, burning is the last thing you should do with them. Well, this is the big debate around the cops, basically, is through the Western countries transfer money, for example, or pay for restitution for past mm. practices. Um, but the intergenerational aspect yeah, of it also, is even yeah. more yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. Say. Yeah. Uh -huh. Good. Tara, okay, uh, we're at, at one hour, so I don't want to take up more of your time, but thank you so much. This was an excellent discussion. Thank you. This was, this was great fun. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting-edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.